This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? I'm great, David. Good morning to you. It's so good that we're doing this yes. together now. I'm very and, happy. Uh, right. So within the next couple of weeks, there's going to be a, a report released by the Pentagon to Congress. It's going to be an unclassified report on the existence, the government knowledge of UFOs, or as they're now calling it, UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, but we're just going to say UFOs in this episode because that's, I think, the, the, the most common name. Uh, and they're going to reveal whatever it is the government supposedly knows about UFOs in this, in this big report uh, coming out later this, this month. Uh, we obviously have not been given early access to this report. Which is uh, shocking in and of itself. itself. Yes, you would think they would have called upon us first. Um, before, but before we talk about the history, but we want to talk today about the history of UFOs, the history of how Americans have, have made sense of, of uh, unidentified aerial phenomenon or unidentified flying objects. Pick your, your favorite. Um, but before we sort of get into that history, I think we need to lay our cards on the table. Frank, do you believe in aliens? <laughs> um, not in the sense that I think that UFOs have visited Earth and have probed human beings or the kind of stories one hears. Do I believe that there is life in the universe other than on our planet? That seems to me to be highly likely. Whether that life is spacefaring or is simply single cell <laughs> remains okay. to be seen. So, 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 do, do, so do I believe in aliens? Um, uh, I believe that there is life elsewhere in the universe. Okay. It seems to me that's highly likely. I have no idea, and I'm I lean on the uh, highly skeptical about UFOs. Uh, but no, there are UFOs. But the U in UFO stands for unidentified. So I think that there are there there have been so objects seen. I don't think the aliens are not among us. They're not hiding in, in in Area Fifty One or wherever it is. I don't believe so. No, okay. I don't believe so. Uh, but I, I, again, I think the laws of probability would suggest that the, okay. you know, the universe is a big place. It would seem, seems obvious to me that, well, obvious is the wrong way to put it. It seems likely to me that there must be life elsewhere. But when you think about our own spacefaring uh, capability as a species, you know, we're at the very beginning um, in terms of, you know, so, so human flight is just about a century old. And, you know, we're, we are, we're at the stage of, like, taking a, a sailboat just beyond the horizon as a species. So we don't know what the hell we're talking about. What, what do you think? Okay, I, I guess we're both, I think, in the, the same place in the X-Files dichotomy of the, the skeptic versus the believer. We're both skeptics about these reports, but, but open to, to uh, new evidence changing our mind. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, yes. Yes, I think that's um, that would be okay. That would be so and so you haven't been abducted. There's none of these. Uh, you haven't seen any. Well, David, yourself. David, David, David. If I had, would I tell you? I don't. I know. mean, maybe I am the people. I, well, them, may, yeah, maybe yeah. I am the alien overlord, yeah. and this podcast is the way by which I'm extending my uh, control over humanity. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> no, I have not been abducted. Okay. Uh, I have not had any UFO encounters okay. myself. Um, I, I have tried to see you. I've gone to some of these places where, where they, they say that UFOs are to be seen, like Marfa, Texas, which is most famous for the Marfa lights. I haven't seen any of them. What? Um, what so so what, where are you on life in the universe, which is not the oh, same thing? Oh, as, yeah, as life in the universe. universe. I'm sure there's life in the universe, depending on how one defines life and all those kinds of things. I think the, the biochemical likelihood that life has evolved somewhere else seems mathematically improbable. Yeah, I mean, water on Mars is really interesting in that regard. Um, you know, you know, and the universe is a big place. The universe is a big place, and what form life takes. But you know, I don't, I don't think we're in a kind of Star Trek universe where the aliens basically look like us but have different facial features or ridges on their heads <laughs> or whatever. Um, may, maybe we are, but um, you know, I, I don't think we're there yet. All right, <laughs> yet, right, okay. Um, and, and if, if you can't tell, both Frank and I are, are fans of science fiction, so we may be dropping uh, allusions to that throughout this episode. It wouldn't surprise me. Now, we're going to go back to, say, like the colonial era, to like the Puritans or something. I'm imagining that, that you know, how people respond in some ways to things they see in the sky is going to be predicated upon how they see the world more broadly, right? 
So I imagine if Puritans are seeing stuff, they're going to interpret that as a sign from God. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That's right. I mean, these are people who believe... And sorry, we there's there's nothing worse than being condescending to people in the past. To be sure. <laughs> so when I, I, I these are people, it sounds like I'm saying you know, you people. <laughs> these are people who believe in the supernatural, and the supernatural helps them order the world they live in mm. because they don't, you know they they simply don't have access to the information that we have access to, um, and so they explain phenomena like comets often as um, being a sign from God. Or eclipses, or what have you. Mm. There, are, there are lots of examples of this, or there are examples of this of the kind of pre-independence period um, in in North American history, and this, and not just North America; it happens mm. all over the world. Um, so we we see cases like this, and um, but what we don't get, at least that I'm not aware of, and I you know, and, and my I did do some research mm. for this this episode. We don't get examples of people claiming kind of extraterrestrial visitors to earth except i guess oh, there's a belief in angels going back to the mm. middle ages you know, so so I, and angels could be interpreted in this way but you don't get you know extraterrestrials in in the same way uh, that phenomenon i think it, it is a product of a later kind of period than than what we see in the, in the colonial period which is ironic because one of the things is that always strikes me, and this this is not to to make light of an incredibly important and uh, incredibly historic, credit excuse me, incredibly important historical moment that mm -hmm. had dramatic consequences, many of them baneful. Uh, so I don't intend to make light for that, light of that, but the encounter with Europeans by Indigenous Americans in fourteen ninety two and in subsequent decades is as close as we've gotten human history. It seems to me to to an alien encounter like mm. that or, or would have seemed as such. Yeah. Um, I mean, one, one of the ways, just sort of jumping ahead a couple of centuries, one of the ways in which people have interpreted H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds is as a critique of British imperialism. Right. You know, of this powerful foreign entity coming in and dominating um, a less technologically sophisticated um culture uh so I mean, you can read that text in other ways uh but obviously that's not the framework they people who are you know in, in the colonial era would have used necessarily they didn't have a concept of of alien life per se as as was at least as, as we understand it no and if you believe in the uh, so there's some interesting things going on in the 17th 18th centuries i mean i would think there's lots of interesting <laughs> things going on there but but in terms of this this question on one hand Again, in speaking about the people, the, the, the kind of settlers in colonial America, at least, um, they believe humanity is the kind of some the peak of, mm. of they're not talking about evolution at this point, but they, you know, is God's most important and greatest creation. But this is also the moment when scientific inquiry is, is being undertaken by the you know the likes of Newton. Um, and people are starting to understand the cosmos in, in new and different ways. So, so the, the kind of scientific revolution is, is, is getting underway at this point too, which will lead, as we'll see, I think, mm. in, in the next few minutes, to some of the later sightings of UFOs. Or, or, or again, I, I, I think UFO is a good term. I like it better than the one you... you, you Unidentified you, aerial phenomena. Yeah, I don't think that's going to catch on. Um, well, you, I think that, that reason why the, that the Pentagon has embraced Unidentified aerial phenomenon is because UFOs got all these laden with other meanings. Right, right. I mean, yeah, it's it's you know people think alien. They think you hear UFO, they think alien. Right, and they also and you also think wacky eccentrics and nutters and things like this. But again, as a description, unidentified is what's important mm. to, to me. And so, so I think that the, the fact that they might look in this, our predecessors would look in the sky and not understand everything they see shouldn't surprise us that we would be the same. Mm, to be sure. And they had a religious framework to explain these things. We, to a large extent, don't in, in the, in the mm. same way. To be sure. Right? Yeah, the, the world made sense to them in a way, in some ways, that doesn't make sense to us sometimes. Yeah, that's right. That's okay. right. Now, if we're going to go and, and, and try to actually get something that... Might, we might classify as a UFO observation. Are there any from the sort of revolutionary generation that jump out to you? You're going to think I'm saying this. Well, I was going to say deliberately. I am saying it deliberately. You're going to think I'm making this up. The first U.S. government encounter with UFOs that I'm aware of, certainly the first presidential encounter, 
is by Thomas Jefferson, or involves Thomas Jefferson. Of course. Of course. Well, in fact, he was interested in weird stuff sometimes. He's interested in lots of... It's not all that surprising. You, you don't think of John Adams or George Washington, his immediate predecessors, as having the same interest in UFOs. Well, he's or, also interested in science. He's interested in dinosaur bones, all that kind of stuff. Yep, and, and so, he's very interested in meteorology. Okay. I mean, he talks about the fact that meteorology is a kind of uh, really important and, and understudied science. Hmm. So... In 1800, in fact, it's when Jefferson was still vice president, when he was Adams as vice president, in June of 1800, a man named William Dunbar, and Dunbar lives in Natchez, Mississippi. Mm. Dunbar is an interesting and kind of awful character in his own way. Dunbar's from Elgin in, in yeah. Scotland, and he, he uh, during the War of Independence, he was a loyalist. He, he had his plantation plundered by both patriots. Um, and loyalists away. Anyway, he, Dunbar is an interesting character. Um, and Dunbar starts a correspondence with Jefferson around this time. And on, at the end of June 1800, he, write, he sends Jefferson account, an account rather, describing a phenomenon which was witnessed in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, not far from where Dunbar lived. Um, at that point, still at, not in the United States. Not in the United States, yep. Um, on the 5th of April, 1800, so a couple of months before. Now, the important thing here is Dunbar um, did not see this himself, so he's, okay. he, he's passing on an account, a description of this event to, to Jefferson. And he mentions an object that he describes as the size of a large house, and then he says 70 to 80 feet long, so it tells us something about the size of houses. A small, large house, okay. <laughs> yes, in, in, in that period, in that place. That was 200 yards in the air that traveled across the sky and then burned itself out and then crashed. Okay. And there was burning in the area. Um, and so the interesting thing about this is Jefferson, who was that, at that time president of the American Philosophical Society, not yet president of the United States, uh, had Dunbar's account published in the transactions of the American Philosophical Society. So he took this seriously. Okay. You're, you're giving well, me a now slightly he, skeptical now, look, David. Now, okay, so, I'm so, not even getting to the nutty Jefferson story, which I'll get to in a second. But, but but here, go ahead. Here's, here's a, a, a UFO just outside of American territory, 1800. Jefferson's interested in it. Louisiana purchased three years later. <laughs> Is a UFO responsible? Dunbar was interested in annexation of, of, of New Orleans and the whole thing, and right? the So... so I think we've got a new interpretation here, Frank, that you need to run with. So, <laughs> Jefferson purchased. I know, no, 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 I, I understand. He's joking. Um, so, so, but let, let's play this out. So, Jefferson purchases Louisiana, which is essentially a huge Area Fifty One to cover <laughs> to cover up this alien invasion. Oh, okay. This is okay. This is good. So, so, so th there we go. So, so as a sequel to Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, we get you know Thomas Jefferson, UFO Hunter. Hunter. Okay. Maybe uh, Jefferson is an alien, and that ex he's trying to cover up the existence of his, his relatives who are... Okay. All right. So, so we get this. Now, it seems likely... I mean, I do find it interesting that Jefferson had this, this account published in the Transactions of the American Philosophical Society. Okay. On one hand, this is exactly the kind of activity that philosophers in the, in the Enlightenment do. They share information, and then they circulate it more yeah. widely on their networks. This is... And all of it's like, hey, isn't this weird? Yeah, right. yeah. exactly. And, and interestingly, Dunbar and Jefferson's correspondence starts over the weather, because uh -huh. both of them are very, very keen takers of the temperature. And Dunbar has months and months and months and years of data on the temperature in Mississippi, which is very hot. Mm -hmm. And he shares this with Jefferson, and Jefferson gets that published in the, in the Proceedings of the American Philosophical Society. They also, uh, they, they carry on a correspondence about temperature and the weather, uh, in which Jefferson, who never liked the cold, says, oh, look at these temperatures I've got from Quebec. Can you believe anybody lives there? Uh, <laughs> and so, so it's interesting that, on one hand, this is enlightened scientific discourse this is a good example of that uh and it but yet it does relate to something that interests both of them which is the weather mm. i don't know what this thing was it sounds like a meteorite or something like sure. that although there's some dispute about uh, um people have said well if it were a meteor of that size you know the impact would have been far more substantial but all, all your ability to, 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 to do size when it's 200 yards up in the air is and Flying pretty fast, yeah. Right. And let's not forget that this is, you know, 
a second-hand account. account. Sure. So, so anyway, so that's the first presidential encounter with a UFO. We get the second one, which is, I think, more typical of what we think of as a UFO, uh, in 1813, also involving Jefferson. Mm-hmm. So at the end of July, on the 31st of July of 1813, uh, two guys named Edward Hansford and John Clark write to Jefferson, who's then in retirement. So this is a post-presidential encounter with the UFO. And um, I can't remember which, either Hansford or Clark uh, owns a tavern in Portsmouth, Virginia. And, and I think the tavern might be important okay. <laughs> And they claim to have seen over Portsmouth, Virginia, a large um, item in the air that changed shape and um, took on different forms, um, including it looked like a turtle at one point and then uh, looked like a human skeleton breathing smoke. And there's a Scottish link here. Okay. They claim looked like a fierce high, Scotch Highland warrior. So I don't know whether he was wearing a kilt. kilt. Um, <laughs> and so they, 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 they wrote to Jefferson and said, this thing passed through the sky. We observed it for several minutes. Uh, interestingly, Jefferson did not reply to this letter. So, so, but this is, this is uh, if you will, we have two encounters. One of, I think the Dunbar um, example is probably what was actually an unidentified object of some kind. I have no idea what Hansford and Clark are on about. Maybe they were partook a lot of the ta- at the tavern, but Jefferson did not see Ed fit to reply to this account about uh, an unidentified flying object that changed shape in the course of the few minutes that, that went from a turtle to a Highland warrior okay. in, in a few minutes. I um and so I assume presidents get a lot of crazy a lot of cre- but I assume modern presidents probably get a lot as we'll talk about in the sure. history of UFOs probably get lots of UFO reports now but these are the earliest ones yeah. I could come out I don't know whether your guys in the middle of the nineteenth century ever had this kind of stuff not not that I'm aware of um, we do have some uh, uh, accounts of UFOs from the nineteenth century and there's, yeah so, there's so three, three what's going on there's three that that jump out to me as as sort of uh, illuminating of how People in the 19th century dealt with um, or thought about the, these kind of phenomena. One is the uh, what is now called the Great Moon Hoax of 19 or of 1835. It's a it's a hoax, uh, and this was a series of articles published in the New York Sun, one of dozens and dozens of, of newspapers that existed in New York City at the time. A series of six articles that describes uh, people observe, using a telescope to observe. Uh, Bison on the moon, goats on the moon, unicorns on the moon, and uh, humanoid-like things with bat-like wings on the moon building temples. Um, so it is in some ways a, a description of alien life as, as in some ways like uh, sort of the 20th century version of alien life on the moon. Uh, and the intriguing thing about this hoax, and there's a Scotland connection here, as if you've read 19th century newspapers, you, you know this, that very often about half the articles are reprinted from somewhere else. So they claimed that this was an article reprinted from an Edinburgh newspaper of a scientific discovery made here of, of these, these man-bats. At the, the Royal Observatory here, presumably. Uh, I'm not sure when that to that level of detail, but it turns out the whole thing was a hoax made up by a a 19th century, a New York journalist who wanted to sell a bunch of newspapers. Right, okay, so it was simply a... Well, I mean, one of the things, you know, thinking about why is that plausible in 1835? I mean, this is a a moment of of tremendous technological change, uh, a a tremendous growth in the number of newspapers. Part of one of the things that you have in the 1830s is an, an explosion in the number of newspapers and... New York had had dozens and dozens of daily newspapers. How do you get your newspaper to be the one that sells the copies? Well, you have the ones with the people on the moon. Uh, you know that that's I think one way to distinguish yourself. And, and other newspapers are doing other crazy things um, in the 1830s to try to sort of push themselves to the sort of front of the line in terms of sensational stories. Um, so there's that moment, and I think that's interesting. Uh, that that you know they were it, it was only in I think five years later they they admit that the journalist admitted that it was a hoax. Second episode I think is indicative of, of some of the things going on in the nineteenth century is the eighteen seventy six Kentucky meat shower. 
<laughs> I, I've got to confess, I'm unaware of the, the Kentucky, Kentucky Meat Shower. Um, hold on, hold on. We can't let this pass. I mean, that's the that's a great name for a barbecue place. Maybe we'll, we'll find. We'll, I'll describe the conduct. So the the story is that there was a, a a a farmer's wife in Bath County, Kentucky, who who witnessed pieces of meat falling from the sky, and they were sort of about two inches by two inches pieces of meat falling from the sky, thousands and thousands of pieces of meat, and people were deeply interested in what the hell this was. Um, there were reporters who flocked to it. Scientific American wrote articles about it. New York Times wrote articles about it. There are pieces of this meat that are preserved in museums now around the world. So people, if you want to study the Kentucky meat shower, you can go and find uh, uh, pieces of this meat. And there were various... In, in, sorry, in legitimate museums? Well, I don't know. Like whatever the legitimate well, museums are of the 19th century. I think that they're still probably in the vaults of places in formaldehyde or something. Right. Um, the... Farmer's wife and the, the farmer, the, the couple who, who who's on whose farm the meat fell, they interpreted it as a, you know, a, in some ways uh, as, a, as a religious event, a sign from God of something, right? It's like manna falling from heaven, except this is pieces of meat. Uh, but there's also a sort of a scientific inquiry at the same time happening, trying to explain it. Some people said this seemed like human flesh. Some people said it, is, that it was like beef. Some people thought it was different animals. Uh, and so there were a variety of explanations for the time for uh, why the Kentucky meat shower happened. The dominant explanation today from people who are interested in this, which granted isn't very many people, but the, the dominant explanation at the moment is uh, that this was a product of a group of vultures. Vultures are known to vomit uh, when they are startled. And so if you have a group of vultures who are all vomiting simultaneously because they are startled, you would have a meat shower. That's seems weird, but that's the best explanation we've got for the Kentucky meat shower of 1876. Assuming that it's not another hoax. No, because well, they had the pieces of meat. Right, but the, but but the the, the farmer, farmer could have could have could have couple could have that the possibility just I guess, right? claimed that the, they there oh, was a meat shower. I mean, this is a great age of grifters and hucksters. Oh, to be you sure, know, late nineteenth century America. Maybe they wanted us. You're casting aspersions at the at the farmer's <laughs> wife who found the the, the meat in the anyway, Yeah, she was the only eyewitness to the meat falling. So uh, maybe maybe that's right. Um, the third event that, that, that sort of really strikes me as sort of being a UFO phenomenon from the 19th century is the 1896-1897 uh, repeated scene of airships. And we have, this seems to start in California, but we have accounts of this in dozens and dozens of American cities of people seeing what they thought were large airships, kind of like blimps, at least that's what most of the descriptions are like, um, some people even described these blimps landing, and some people actually described talking to the people who got off the, the airships, uh, although those tend to be sort of the later accounts. Uh, but most of them, people see these airships moving in the sky in sort of the late evening hours uh, just, after, just after sunset. And there were two dominant explanations at the time of what these were. Um, one is that these were... Aliens from Mars. Uh, it's worth saying that this is a phenomenon that happens uh, the same year that H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds was published. I'm not sure there's a relationship there, but I think that sort of speaks to that particular moment. The other explanation was that this airship, these airship sightings were a real airship by a person, a, a eccentric inventor who was trying to experiment uh, clandestinely and, uh, you know, was just... Uh, wasn't telling people about his experiments. Uh, and this was such a dominant explanation that Thomas Edison had to say, no, this is not me. I don't have an airship. I'm not flying across uh, the West Coast uh, in a blimp. Um, but I, mean, I think that's one of the places where you actually see people having this vision of um, what they thought were aliens from Mars, uh, you know, flying in, in vehicles uh, in, the, in the Earth's atmosphere. But what's sorry, David? Um, what's interesting to me about this is these when when these sightings occur, especially historically, mm. 
the technology is the technology that the people of the time understand. So that may be slightly more sophisticated, sophisticated yes. right? But it's, uh, um, and maybe that's the only way it would be because how else would you, how else could you describe what you've seen? Um, but it seems a little odd that Martians would come in blimps. Yes. But of course, of course hot air balloons were a technology and blimps of that time, that yet this is before airplanes. You know, and, and one of the things that some people who have, who have examined this have pointed out is, is that, that once these sightings begin, you know, they, 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 they proliferate and people go out to see these, right? So it's not sort of happenstance, people see them. People go out on hillsides trying to look for these um, airships. Um, and odds are they were seeing Venus or something and it wasn't behaving the way they thought it was and they looked at it and, and interpreted it the way that they wanted to. Um, that seems like a, a way of, of logically making sense of this, this phenomenon besides airships from Mars. Um, obviously, when we talk get to the 20th century, there's a huge number, though, of, of UFO sightings, especially after World War II. Right. So, yeah, I mean, so so the great age of the of the UFO really starts in the 1940s. I right. think. I mean, I think there are sightings before, but both in terms of their impact on popular culture. Mm. Uh, now, I think I, I think a key there are two key elements in terms of providing context for this uh, that they're important. One is the kind of pulp science fiction, mm. which is so popular at the time, and the kind of. Uh, and so there's just a the kind of there's just a huge amount of uh, popular science fiction in circulation that uh, and and radio serials and movies and things like this that um, uh, are permeating the culture at this point. The second is, of course, and, and more serious. Well, not more serious for humanity, mm. not necessarily more important for this topic, um, is the Cold War mm. and the Cold War rivalry between the United States. And its allies in the Soviet Union and its allies, um, and it, it it seems to me not surprising that we see a kind of um, real concern with with UFOs or lots of sightings of UFOs um, in the fifties and sixties in particular um, against that backdrop. Now, uh, and I think that operates on a couple of levels. First of all, there probably were. Uh, you know, the United States and Soviet Union were probably conducting aerial... Well, they were. We know this. Mm. We're conducting aerial surveillance of each, of each other. Um, and undoubtedly, people were seeing things um, as a result of that that they that couldn't be readily explained um, because the technology was classified. Things sure. Like this. So, so U-2 flights over the Soviet Union, for example. So we get, we got that. But also, the fear... And frankly, paranoia that characterized mm. aspects of the Cold War, I think, probably encouraged this. What, what do you, well, what do you I think, think? I, I think that's definitely right. I mean, I think the, they're not only there's just more stuff in the sky. sky by the to way. be sure, <laughs> right? There's also, you know, the, the the belief that not only that that uh, fear of, of the, the Soviet Union, but I think there's also a belief that the federal government is hiding things, right? Right, and we think about the sort of Manhattan Project, this sort of multi-billion-dollar project to develop this secret weapon during the Second World War, you know, that the government was able to successfully hide that, the existence of that for multiple years, right? And, and so therefore they could also therefore hide the existence of alien life, Area 51, all this kind of stuff, right? Um, one thing that, 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 I mean, one way to sort of interpret this is the government also has an incentive, right, to, to, to when people see things, to, to, say no comment to deny it. And, and obviously, in some ways, there's an incentive for the federal government to encourage this belief in extraterrestrial life. So when people see things that may be a new spy plane, that may be a new bomber, maybe a new rocket, maybe new whatever, if people say, oh, that's aliens, that actually has a, a, a global strategic advantage for the United States in a weird way. Maybe. I, mean, I, I think it might be more prosaic than that. I think that there's a skepticism about government. I mm. think the rise of the secret and national security state during the Cold War mm. means that the government tended to, to uh, keep more secrets and sometimes to mislead people. I don't think they necessarily want to encourage people to believe they're aliens, uh, you know, to hide a new bomber. But, but um, I do think... 
I, you know, when this report comes out in a couple of weeks' time, mm. I don't know what it's going to say, but let's suppose they say, yep, there are things that some of our pilots have seen. We can't identify them. We doubt they're aliens. Mm. I, th I think that's probably what it'll say. I think we're going to get, you know, uh, something along those lines. Um, they're not going to say, oh, we have bodies of aliens in Area 51? I doubt it. Oh, uh, that's too bad. Uh, Probably because they don't. Uh, however, there will be people who won't believe it mm. because the government's saying it. They'll say, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? Mm. Um, and, and so there's there's a level of... <laughs> so what we get is we get a rise of a sign of uh, an embrace of secrecy by the government at the mm. same time that the public is increasingly skeptical about the government. Mm. You know, look, at, look at the something as relatively straightforward as the Kennedy assassination and the conspiracies around that. Sure. So if you, you know, when you place that in the context of, of all the UFO conspiracies, mm. like Roswell, or it's just, sorry, David, can you, I mean, let's try to put some meat on the bones here, as it were. Uh, mm. uh, a meat shower. <laughs> <laughs> uh, could you just give us some examples of the, of the kind of post-war sure. um, UFO phenomenon? Well, it is really in, in the immediate aftermath of... of the Second World War, that we get sort of this language of, of UFOs and the language of flying saucers. And one of the places you first see that is in 1947. There's a series of, of sightings of things in that year. Uh, one of the more famous is, is near uh, Mount Rainier, where an army, uh, a pilot by the name of Ken Arnold, is looking for a downed military plane. He's flying over, trying to look for it. And he sees nine objects flying in formation. And his first thought is, these must be Soviet bombers coming in. He figures that they're coming in from the right direction if they are Soviet bombers. But then he sees that they are moving in formation. They're flying erratically. They're not moving the ways that planes move. He describes uh, what he sees later as, as these objects were, were skipping like saucers across the water. So like a, a, a right, like saucer. Right, like you skip a stone. So, yeah, exactly. So, but he describes it as a saucer, and that is actually when you get this terminology of flying saucer uh, enter the oh, lexicon. Right, okay. uh, a journalist sort of takes that bit that he said and translates it into a flying saucer. You have the term UFO first used by the Air Force in 1953, and I think and that's in response to a whole number of, of sightings in the late 40s and early 50s of of these items in the sky that, that um, people can't explain. Um, and, and one intriguing thing about the, the sort of explosion in in ufo sightings is really how many of these are in the united states yes well that was one of my questions for you david because one of the um if there's a theme in this podcast over over the years we've been doing it we often talk about things and then um i will say yeah but what about this you know this is a global phenomenon right, yeah. uh, and and i often put you on the spot in this this doesn't seem to be a. I mean, it is a global phenomenon. If you go to the Wikipedia page for UFO sightings, mm. um, which is an interesting place to go, <laughs> um, there are sightings from all over the world. However, the vast majority of them are in the United States historically, uh, if that list is to be believed. Mm. What do you think explains that? Uh, that's a really good question. I think um, part of it, I think, obviously, is, is the the the. Cold War fears in the United States have a particular manifestation to them that that's going to sort of lead people to interpret uh, aerial phenomena that they can't explain in certain ways. I think that there's a um, probably just a lot more experimental aircraft in the United States. Um, I don't know. What? How do you make sense of, of why people in the rest of the world aren't reaching these kinds of conclusions? What is the American exceptionalist explanation. Yeah, I mean, for... this is a case where there does seem to be legitimately <laughs> American exceptionalism. Uh, I don't know. Mm. I mean, to, to be honest with you, I think... Aliens really like Americans. Well, yeah, again, it's one of the reasons that leads me to believe that they're probably not alien. We, mm. we are not being visited by aliens because why would they just come to the... They don't just come to the United States if these sightings mm. are true. Uh, but they predominantly go to the United States. Um you'd think they'd be more evenly distributed around the, around mm. the globe. Uh, I, I think that, I, I think you're right. I think the, the paranoia of the Cold War, the culture of the Cold War mm. um, would have been part of that. I think the technological prowess of the United States mm. and the government uh, when it comes to developing stuff that flies mm. <laughs> is, would, would partially explain this. So people are seeing things that they don't necessarily, that aren't flying, that, 
the kinds of things that aren't necessarily flying elsewhere um, at a particular point in time. Having said that, having said all of that, Cold War ended in 1989. Mm. UFO sightings did not end. Now, um, friend of the pod and a very good young historian, Daniel Galata at mm. Stanford, had wrote an article recently about this in, in The Bulwark. And uh, Daniel talked about the phenomena of UFO sightings. He actually identified a pattern that they kind of peak every 20 years. And where we're in another peak period, there was a peak in the early 90s. And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and, and so um, my point being... Now, the early 90s also when the X-Files were on. Right. Well, exactly. Um, but Daniel was using the X-Files as an example, uh, as, as a manifestation mm. of the interest in them at the time. Um, it the, could run the other way. Of course. But, however... My point being, the Cold War has been over for a generation, mm. but the, the pace of sightings, again, largely in the United States, mm. not exclu exclusively, but largely, um, has continued. You know, Richard Hofstadter, you know, nearly 60 years ago, wrote about conspiracy in America and the paranoid style mm. of, of looking uh, of, of some Americans. Uh, you know, geographically, they're not... They're scattered across the United States. There's no doubt about that, but they do predominate mm. in in the West, in particular. Now, maybe this is for um, reasons of environment and light pollution, or the absence of light pollution. Um, but I don't, I don't have a satisfactory answer for why Americans seem to yeah. see more UFOs than others. I, I, I and and if you know, why don't Canadians see as many? You know, I mean, 80% of whatever the figure is, is a very large majority of the Canadian population lives within 200 miles of the border with the United States. Mm -hmm. This is a border that I would presume that UFOs don't recognize. <laughs> so why aren't we seeing as many UFO Those sightings in proportional terms in Canada as we do in the United States? Yeah, that's a, that's a remarkably good question. If any of our listeners have Or Mexico. Exactly. Yeah, I, I don't know. You know, thinking about this, this commission that's going to, Pentagon group that's going to sort of release the, the all the secrets supposedly. You know, it reminds me of, of a, a similar moment in 1968 where there was a government commission to investigate all of these sightings that have been happening in the previous 20 years, called the the Condon Committee, that was funded by the Air Force, that was run by the University of Colorado. They had all the quote unquote experts, whatever that means, with with UFOs, and they concluded that there was basically nothing to it. Right, and that further scientific investigations of UFOs was a waste of effort and money. But they would say that. Of course they, they would say that. <laughs> and that's the way in which the sort of UFO community, the, the people who are in, in, interested in this phenomenon, you know, that's the way in which they responded to the Condon Committee's report in 1968 was, of course that's what you're going to tell us, right? And, and when we think about you know, the kinds of other kind of revelations that have happened since 1968, the various kinds of, you know, cover-ups that people have claimed the federal government is doing. People said, look, here's another example of the government having a commission to claim to reveal something, but in fact is doing so for the purpose of concealing something. Um, thinking about this, the cycles that you mentioned about sort of different, you know, points in which Americans in the in the past 70 years or so have been interested in UFOs. One thing that's intrigued me is, is about whether we Americans see UFOs fundamentally as a threat or whether Americans see UFOs fundamentally as, you know, are the aliens friendly, basically, right? And I think you also see some interesting cycles there. So, I mean, I think if you think about the, the 1939 Orson Welles uh, War of the World's radio broadcast. That's clearly hostile aliens. You know, invasion of the body statues, nineteen fifty six. Clearly hostile aliens. Some more recent manifestations, though, of of UFOs, in, at least in popular culture, and sometimes also in the sort of conspiracy worlds of alien abduction, are are point you know depict aliens as friendly creatures, as you know the ETs who are. You know, the threat is not from the aliens. The threat is actually from the, uh, you know, government who wants to, to kidnap the alien. The aliens actually are the good guys. Um, yeah, I mean, or, um, you know, I'm struck by a, the film Independence Day, mm -hmm. right? Which is you know, kind of over-the-top B-movie 
stuff. It's actually quite mm. a fun movie to watch. Uh, but but you know, it, it, the theme of indep- in Independence Day, the aliens are hostile, but they cause humanity to band together mm. to defend it, defend itself. And there's this kind of you know we get the rousing speech by the U.S. president. Sure. You know, today is Independence Day for the whole world, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Talk about exceptionalism. Um, <laughs> but but. Um, it's an interesting. The consequence of the aliens is it's quite uplifting, mm. actually, as a film. So they're not. You're right. They're not always hostile, although. And, and one thing along those lines, some people have noticed is that there's a difference, or there seems to be a difference among the ways in which African Americans interpret UFOs than white Americans. That there's a preponderance of of white Americans who see UFOs as fundamentally threatening. Whereas there's a, a different discourse some historians have pointed out or people who are trying to sort of make sense of this uh, about how African-Americans interpret alien sightings where they're much more likely to be friendly. Um, that there's a, a discourse, especially in in, Af- in, in uh, funk music, for instance, that talks about the, the mothership will come down and rescue us. Um, I'm not quite sure what, what, what sense to make of that. Uh, George Clinton claims to have actually seen aliens. I don't know if people have been skeptical of that given his... Substance use, other things, but um, he said he wasn't high at the time. I mean, in 1991, David, 3.7 million Americans, according to a survey mm. which has been contested by, by Roper, said they might have been abducted by aliens. Might have been abducted. Yeah, that's something that uh, uh, either uh, had yes or no. Encounter. Yeah, it would seem okay. to me you'd remember it, but of course you wouldn't. Mm. I mean, a lot of people. You know, there there is a there's a definite pattern to alien abduction stories, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're abducted, and you're usually anesthetized in some way and probed. probed yeah. uh, <laughs> there's always probing yeah. involved, um, and then returned. Right. Right. Um, so there there is a pattern, but but three point seven million is a lot of people. That is a lot of people. Um, to 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 have claimed this, and again, there's a higher proportion that why aliens are more interested in Americans than anybody mm-hmm. else seems a little weird. Um, but I don't, we're back. I, sorry, I, I just offer that factoid. It came up in my reading for the episode, but it, it's a different version of getting at the, you know, why is this, what, yeah. why does this, uh, uh, why is this so popular among Americans or certain Americans? And I, and I, do you think America, you know, the, the, one of the, one of the things we know is by almost by global standards, mm. American religiosity is much higher, mm. um, in, as, although declining at the moment, but uh, uh, much higher than in comparable other uh, other countries, other industrialized yes. uh, liberal democracies. Uh, do you think that? Well, has I think to do I think it? it does. I think there's a certain kind of apocalyptic thinking that is embedded within seeing UFOs um, that is is tied to American religious thought. Um, one obviously, since you mentioned the '90s, one example from the '90s is the the Heaven's Gate. Um, cult uh, in which uh, 39 people committed suicide because they believed that uh, a UFO was trailing the Hale-Bopp comet and they thought if they killed themselves at that particular moment in time when the comet was passing overhead that they would somehow be beamed aboard the ship or I don't remember exactly what the, the theological explanation was but it was this interesting and horrific but interesting melange of of, of UFO thought and, and religious thought commingled um, in, in one, one event. Uh, and I think that sort of speaks to, you know, thinking about how Americans make sense of things, you know, that they don't understand, going back to the sort of beginning of our episode, we're thinking about how, uh, you know, the Puritans would have made sense of things or how, you know, enlightened figures would have made sense of things or now how, uh, sort of Cold War and post-Cold War context, people make sense of things. Um, yeah, I'm very intrigued to see what, what they produce in this report. Yeah. And, and not only sort of what kind of evidence they pre- present, but then how they interpret that evidence, right? If they say, look, here are the 12 things we don't understand, you know, is there going to be some analysis then of saying, here's what we think this is, here's how, you know, an explanation for these phenomenon, or are they just going to sort of lay out the data uh, or lay out the sort of evidence as they have it and, and uh, let people make make sense of it on their own? That's a good question. And undoubtedly, whatever they say, there'll be people who won't accept it. 
either, either because they refuse to accept the possibility of UFOs mm. or alien interaction, or because, as again, it seems likely to me that they'll come up with, they'll say, okay, we've encountered a number of phenomena we can't explain. We don't know what they are, um, and and uh, but 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 we think it's unlikely that they're aliens, um, extraterrestrials. Mm. Uh, but people who want to believe in them will continue to believe in them and won't believe will will disregard this report. I suspect. I don't know. I'll tell you, we're in for a shock if they say, Today. you know, Joe Biden takes off his aviators and says, "Well, I got news for you, folks. <laughs> they're here and they're among us." That's exactly. <laughs> I think I saw that television program. That's great. Okay, well, looking forward to looking forward. Maybe uh, depends on whether they're hostile or not. Yeah, excellent. All right, time for last shots, Frank. What you got? I want to uh, recommend an article that appeared in the uh, that appears in the Atlantic in this month's Atlantic by Paul Finkelman, mm. who's a legal historian, and Finkelman examines the relationship between the Supreme Court Justice um, John Marshall, who's often seen as the kind of creator of the. Supreme Court in many regards. Uh, Marshall was the chief justice of the Supreme Court in the first decades of the 19th century and slavery. And and Finkelman, who's previously written extensively about various of the founding fathers in slavery, uh, especially Jefferson, mm. um, uh, of whom he is not a fan, uh, has basically turned his attention to John Marshall. Amazingly, Marshall's biographers haven't really written about Marshall and slavery, in part because many of them have approached Marshall simply as a jurist. Mm. And Marshall is so important in the history of the court that that's been their emphasis. And and Finkelman shows in this article the degree to which, and this is uns- it's kind of obvious mm. when you think about it, he was a Virginia planter, you know, the degree to which Marshall was engaged with and implicated by the, the, the just like everybody else. Just like everybody else. Uh, but it's it's a pretty devastating indictment of Marshall. And he does, because Finkelman himself is a legal is a lawyer and a legal scholar, he does make connection between some of Marshall's decisions and slavery mm. in ways that um, previous biographers and historians haven't haven't done. Uh, so I, I would recommend this to you. It's it's very I think a quite significant article. Cool. What All about right, you, I'll David? Uh, well, uh, Listeners may, when you're listening to this, uh, may know that the Congress has just uh, created a new federal holiday, Juneteenth. Uh, it's the first federal holiday created in, in 40 years since the Martin Luther King holiday. And I've been always been intrigued by by holidays, both the, the official holidays, things like Juneteenth, uh, Independence Day, all these kinds of things, and the unofficial holidays. Uh, you know, your, your Secretary's Day, all these other kinds of various and sundry kinds of, of, of holidays we've got. And one that's always intrigued me is National Donut Day. Because you can get free donuts in the United States on National Donut Day. But it always seemed like National Donut Day was happening like all the time. And I was intrigued by this because we recently... Well, we are a nation that loves donuts. We are a nation that loves donuts. That's true. Donuts are amazing. Um, but uh, I, I was in, we recently had National Donut Day a few weeks ago. And I did some research on it because why not? turns out there are two National Donut Days. And I was intrigued so, by... So, so, the, sorry, stop. Please tell me that Dunkin' Donuts is in favor of one and Krispy Kreme in favor of the other. That would be awesome, but, but no. Like if, we, if we had Donut Wars, this would donut be the best. Wars, yes. uh, With yeah. Tim Horton on the sidelines saying, I'm actually better than you. Jeez, <laughs> oh, the Canadian donuts are going to get involved. Um, anyway, uh, the, the, the June National Donut Day seems to be the larger of the two and the older of the two. It's actually associated with the First World War, where they sold donuts to raise money for the troops. The second National Donut Day, which is in November, is a little bit more mysterious about its origin. Seems to go back into the 1930s, um, but but and, and exactly why we have two National Donut Days still seems to be something of a mystery. But I found a, a Mental Floss article about the two National Donut Days. Uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And, uh, sorry, I mean we're wrapping up these 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 items aren't meant to be very long, but I mean. But donuts, yeah, they're like yeah. flying saucers. You know, <laughs> there you go. Right? Okay, there you go. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, so there's like big donut behind this, promoting two days. Are there yeah. is there a regional pattern to them? I'm not in as terms far as of... I can tell, but I mean they they do seem to to, to promote both of these because obviously you promote anything you want, you know, in your time and get people interested in donuts, and 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 I think uh, both. 
uh, Krispy Kreme and Dunkin' Donuts on various occasions either give away free donuts on both these National Donut Days or give out special donuts on on on, on the National Donut Days. So, you know, I'm in big favor of celebrating all the things that are worthy of celebrating, whether they're big, important historical things or stupid things like donuts, um, you know. So, so David, the more, me, the more holidays you got, the better off. Sure, sure, sure. Um, what's your favorite kind of donut? I really like cinnamon rolls, yeah. Uh, which I'm not sure is actually a donut because it doesn't have a hole in it. Um, I'm not sure I have a favorite kind of donut. Do you have a favorite kind of donut? Well, uh, as you know, because uh, for 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 medical reasons, donuts are sure, a pleasure sure, tonight. Okay. But I, but I as used a child, to, I, you know, I used to. It would be a Dunkin' Donuts chocolate glazed. Ah. So not glazed with chocolate, the chocolate donut it's that's glazed. glazed. Yeah. Oh, that's your favorite. Yeah, they're the very best good. donut I ever. Or the blueberry. So, I was doing a fellowship in, in, in Los Angeles a number of years ago, and we decided, with my family, we were there, and we decided to go and visit all the famous donut places in Los Angeles. Los Angeles has some very good donuts. We went to the Randy's Donuts, you know, the big one that has the big donut that's, you know, an Iron Man too. that one, that was fine. The best donuts that we had was at a place called uh, Donut Man, which is sort of 20 miles east of L.A. We went there at like 11 o'clock at night, it's open 24 hours, and there was a line around the block to go to Donut Man. So if you're in, I think it's in Glendale. If you're in, in the Glendale area, and I don't know if Donut Man's still around, but that was the best donut I've ever had. Okay. Yes. All right. right. On that note. Well, David, happy National Donut, donut Day. Day. Yes. And Juneteenth. All these things <laughs> yeah. change. Yeah, it's slightly more significant. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.